let's get into God's word and maybe that will, it will come back to us then. Praise God's name. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for your peace. Thank you that we can sing and rejoice in your name and in your, this place. Thank you for the freedom that we have, Father, tonight, that we can come and openly share the word of God tonight, that we're not in a country, Lord, or a place where so many of our brothers and sisters are, where we have, they have to gather in fear of their government and of, of persecution. Lord, help us to recognize that that is possible here. And there are even some early signs of it. And so, Father, we thank you that we continue to pray for this nation. We continue to pray. Your word says that if we pray for our leaders, that we will, learn, we will live a quiet and a peaceable life. And so, Father, we want to ever, never want to forget the, the privilege that we have and the freedom that we have. And we ask you that you would sustain that so that the work of your church may continue to go forth. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't want to go. This wasn't what it, it is, and this isn't part of the message. But I'm becoming more and more alarmed at the reports I see of just positions that courts are taking and governments are taking. I mean, just way out there. This last week, there was a federal district court. Now, state courts, I understand. There's a federal district court that ordered a, a school committee for the high school graduation. It told them what words they could not be uttered. Not only did it forbid them from praying, the court enjoined them to not say the word prayer or amen or amen, invocation or benediction. Federal district court. Fortunately, the court of appeals overturned them. But to me, it's significant. Now, there's some wild courts way out west, but it wasn't one of those. It was in the state of Texas. We live in perilous times. Live in perilous times. There's a missionary that we work with that, that is, um, is in, a, in a country that's known for their... It's a communist country, a large communist country. And the last time they were here, they told me that the, the government passed a resolution saying that Christianity was beneficial to the purposes of the government. I said, isn't that interesting? In that communist country... The government's recognizing the benefit of the church. In this country, we can't say the word prayer in public. Pray for this nation. Praise the Lord. Well, open your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, we kind of took a sidetrack. And uh, as I was announced Sunday and fully intended to go back to the series, Spirit, Soul, and Body, as I was praying today, I really had a strong, strong sense we're not quite done with what we talked about last week. For those that you may not have been here t last week, we spent some time ex exposing the, what the Bible says about the fact that we're in spiritual warfare. We looked in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 where it says to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. We looked at some other scriptures that say we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, that he works with us in devices. The Bible tells us that he can appear as an angel of light. And the Bible tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That tells me we're wrestling against an enemy. The enemy's not your spouse. It's not your neighbor sitting next to you now or Sunday. Your enemy is the devil. We don't talk much about the devil here, but he's very real. And he is your adversary. The Bible tells us he is your adversary. It says to be aware of him because he walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
That means his express goal is to devour you. So you have an enemy who's determined to devour you. That's what the Bible says about it. Now, it doesn't say he will. It says he's seeking whom he may devour. That means he needs your cooperation and your permission. But he is very adept at conning us into giving it to him. So we spent some time looking at his devices last week. and then. But what I want to get into tonight is there's another side to that. And so we're going to look and sec, we're going to go to look at a number of scriptures tonight. One of the things I love about the Bible, there are many things I love about the Bible, but God, God, is, a, God is a God of truth. He is truth. And, and He doesn't sugarcoat things. I mean, He just, this is it. This is the way things are. And the people that He discloses to us in the Bible, He shows us their warts, their bumps, their strengths, and their weaknesses. He doesn't paint them to us, you know, like he, doesn't, he doesn't put spin on them. He doesn't present them to us in the best light or the worst. He just says, this is what they're like. See, that's reassuring to me. That means God's used to working with people like us. He's work, used to working with human beings. At one point, it says, Jesus didn't say anymore because he knew what the manner of men is. He, he knows what we're like. Not only does he know what we're like, he dwelled among us, took on flesh and dwelled among us so that he could identify with our weaknesses and the struggles that we go through. The Bible says so that he can be uh, an effectual high priest. That's someone to represent you before God. Under, God doesn't understand what weaknesses are. God does not understand your struggle with weakness. Am I, make sure I'm trying to, does anybody here have a struggle with weakness? Or am I just me? Well, then you can just listen to me talk to me tonight, okay? If you don't have a struggle with weakness, then you've got to struggle with pride. Because <laughs> the Bible says the flesh is weak. So if you're alive tonight, you're at least dealing with flesh that's weak. Now, it's good news it's weak, but we won't go off in that direction. All right, okay. So God just chose His people that are real. Now, I said that Jesus, the Bible says, He took on flesh and dwelt among us so that He might become a faithful high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmity, Hebrews chapter 4. So that he can represent us, you, before a perfect God who doesn't understand weakness. He can be sympathetic to it. Now listen to me carefully. He can be sympathetic to it, but not empathetic to it. Sympathy means I'm trying to relate to what you're going through. I know you're going through a rough time, but I can't feel it myself. Empathy means I can feel what you're feeling. And when somebody can empathize with you, they can connect better with what you're going through. That's why God often uses your weaknesses to minister to somebody else with weakness. For several reasons. First of all, it gets your eyes off of you. Secondly, He wants to use, because you've struggled with something and learned how to overcome it, you've learned something that other people can benefit by. Not only that, because you've been through it, you can identify with their struggle and you can be compassionate upon them. So we're going to look at a man who struggled with wanting to quit. We're going to look at a man who struggled with being weak. We're going to look at a man who wanted to quit. He wanted to die. Do you ever just want to die? I mean, you got to be pretty bad when you want to, that's it, I'm out of here. Check my holster at the door. Give me a ticket. I'm gone. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm not talking about quitting your job. I mean leaving here. Not Seekonk. 
your life here. Dying. Well, let's read about this gentleman. See, we think of this guy as strong and powerful and eloquent and educated, and he was. But you can get under such pressure that your strength and your power and your education and all of that isn't enough. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, that's the southern part of, of Greece at the time, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's great so far. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, that sounds good, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. Well, I don't accept that. I don't believe in tribulation. I don't accept it. That's not my confession. Well, you can believe it or not believe it, confess it or not confess it. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's what the word tribulation means. Who comforts us in all our trouble. So there's no trouble that you may be going through tonight that He does not want to comfort you in it. Say, I don't want to be comforted in it. I want to get out of it. Well, we'll talk about that. Who comforts us in all our tribulation or trouble. Why? That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, God will comfort you and then comfort you in such a way so that you can now turn around and comfort someone else. When God delivered Job out of all his troubles... The first thing he says, now, Job, you go pray for your friends, and I use that term very loosely, who have now gone through some of the stuff you're going through because of the things that they said. And when Job prayed for them, he was healed and made well. Verse 5, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation or comfort also abounds through Christ. So he's talking about that Christ suffered. Well, we know he suffered on the cross, but he didn't just suffer on the cross. He suffered, first of all, in the wilderness when the Bible says that the Spirit of God, now that he was filled with the Holy Spirit, led him in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That was a form of suffering, to have to deal with that temptation in his flesh. So one type of suffering, and we don't have time to get into it tonight. It's not our purpose. But suffering is a very fascinating thing to study in the Bible, and it's one of the most misunderstood subjects where people without a biblical understanding of it, a balanced biblical understanding, take scriptures and push them to say things they don't say. And there's, there's two extremes or two ditches or two sides of the road you can fall in. And the key is understanding that the Bible talks about two basic different types of suffering. And where we're to handle them are very different depending on which type of suffering there are, you're talking about. There's one type of suffering that we are to endure. It's not sickness and disease. It's the type of suffering that Jesus endured as an example for us. Basically, it's persecution. The other type of suffering is the suffering we don't have to go through, and that's the suffering that he took as our substitute If someone's been a substitute for you, then you don't have to go through what they went through because they went through it in your place. So it's kind of silly to go through something that they went through for you and so you don't have to go through it and you still go through it anyway. 
So that's the suffering that he took on himself as our substitute. So it's important to be able to discern the difference, and that was a subject we'll talk about in a different day. But needless to say, this that Paul was going through is one of those types of suffering that the Bible does say that we will go through. And Jesus said we'll go through it also. All right. So one of the things is we are to... We, Paul was going through such a difficult time that he's looking, and when you go through a difficult time, we, we want to find out why. Somehow, if we can find out why, it makes us feel better. If there's a purpose for it, then it makes us feel better. Well, by and large, in the middle of what you're going through, you're not going to find the purpose. That's been my experience. So if you're trying to find the purpose, it's going to distract you from knowing what you should do. All right, let's go on. Verse 6, now if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation. What he means by that is the suffering that we're going through, we're going through because we brought the gospel to you. We're going through it for your sake, not the way Jesus did as a substitute, but the occasion of our being going through this difficulty, this extreme difficulty we're going through, is because we've brought the gospel to you and people haven't liked it. So for afflicted, it's on your con- for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. For if we are comforted, it's for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast. But because we because we know that as you are partakers of these sufferings, so also you will partake of our consolation. So just as you go through it, you're going to also get the same consolation that we're getting. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of our life. This is the Apostle Paul. Strong man of faith. And he got under such pressure in his life, such opposition that he despaired of his own life. He ran out of his strength. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. One of the things we looked at last week in how you fight this spiritual warfare is the beginning is to know who are you being strong in. Ephesians 6.10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Our human reaction when something comes against us is to try to fight it in our own strength. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who, did, who delivered us from so great a death, and He does deliver us in whom we trust that he, he will still, and we trust that He will still deliver us. That tells me He's already been delivered from some trouble, and He's now again in some trouble. We're not talking about trouble with the law. Because He goes on to explain, if you're suffering because you've done some things wrong, you don't get credit for that. If, if you've messed up and you've, you know, said something you shouldn't have said or done something you shouldn't have done, and now you're going through all kinds of trouble because of it, and you brought it on yourself because you did something wrong, God loves you. But you're not going to get credit for what a strong Christian you are for going through something you brought on yourself. This is suffering that Paul went through for doing what was right. 
you understand there's two reasons why you go through difficulties? This will really help you figure that out. One reason trouble comes on you is because you've done something wrong. And you've released, we talked about that last week. You've opened a door to the enemy to bring something into your life. The other reason you go through trouble is because you've done something right. So it's either because you did something wrong or did something right. Now I think if, you're, if your mind says, okay, therefore I won't do anything, <laughs> that's doing something wrong. Well, we're going to help you out. Who, verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us. That's why we need to pray for one another. The thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Now let's take a look over in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's take a look at just a sampling of what some of this trouble was he was talking about. And then we're going to look quickly at some others and then we're going to show you the way out because there is a way out. Verse 22, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-two. Are the Hebrews... Now what's happened here, and I don't want to spend a lot of time going through the background here, but the Apostle Paul founded this church at Corinth and then he established it raised up leaders, and then he left to found other churches. This church was very spiritually immature. Gifts of the Spirit are operating powerfully. And they got so puffed up in pride about how God was using them, they wrote a letter back to Paul correcting him, saying that he they were more spiritual than he was, that he was proud and boastful and arrogant, and that he needed to grow up and become as spiritual as they were. So a good part of this letter is written in sarcasm. In fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. So you've got to understand, this is being written in a very sharp tone. Paul is correcting them. They've been through nothing compared to what he's been through. And they're criticizing him, saying he's weak. What they've said to him is, oh, you're strong when you're not with us, and write strong letters, but when you're with us, you're weak. So he's trying to subtly point out some of his experiences to compare to some of their experiences but it does give us an insight on what he went through. Verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Now he's being sarcastic here. I am more in labors, more abundant. In stripes. That's not a sergeant's stripes. Those are wounds on his back from being whipped. In stripes, above measure, in prisons, more frequently, in death, or the threat of death, often. Now, these are for doing, for answering his call. These are for being where he's supposed to be. See, sometimes we have this innocent 
attitude that if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, then things are going to go well for me. You've got to understand that the enemy we talked about last week, what he's after is to stop the spread of the gospel. So if he's not bothering you, there's an implication there that you're not bothering him. There's a story I've told you, and I've forgotten who tells the story. I, I heard it a little while ago about a, a bishop who was reading, talking to some of the, 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 the priests or whoever was underneath him. And he said, you know, I'm in trouble. I've been reading the New Testament, and I've been studying the Apostle Paul, and I discovered that wherever he went, there were riots. Wherever I go, they serve me tea. I'm beginning to wonder, maybe there's a reason. Now, we'd all rather have tea served than a riot. But we'd all rather finish the course and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, let's keep reading on. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus ones. That means that under the Jewish law, you could not punish somebody by hitting them more than 40 times. So what they would do is to be careful. They didn't make a mistake. They would only whip you 39 times. Five times he's had his clothes pulled off his back and been whipped with a rod, like it was called a vestigo, which is like a stiff. You hear about the canings that they do over in the Far East with a whipping, with a whipping stick. Five times. Three times, I've been beaten with rods. So apparently there's a distinction between be, being hit with something that gives you the stripes and then been beaten with rods because that only happened three times. Once I was stoned. Now, not the way some of you might think of it from your past. They took you out to a place they had reserved outside the town and all the townspeople picked up rocks and threw them at you. We'll see that in a few minutes. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That means without a boat. So he was somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, a night and a day, without a boat. Now, you know, we read through this quickly. Just think about that. A night and a day. It'd be hard enough to be out there in the day bobbing around trying to stay afloat because you'll soon dawn on you that you may not be alone. There may be other living things in that water at the same time that are used to being there and they may be hungry. And they may just look at your legs dangling down and think as ugly as they may look to you, they may be appealing to them. That's during the daytime. Imagine then spending the night where you can't see what's around you, so all you have is your imagination to run. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, 
perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils from false brethren. Oh, that's one of the best kind. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, that's voluntary hunger, often, in cold and nakedness, and besides other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches. For who is weak and it doesn't make me weak? Who is made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? For if I must boast, I will boast in the things that concern my infirmity. That word means weakness or inability to stand or produce results. It does not mean sickness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, now this was back when he was first saved, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but they had to let me down in a basket through the window in the wall, and I escaped from his hands. Now let's just go to take a quick look at some of these things. Acts chapter 13. This is in case you think you had a bad day. Acts 13. Paul has just been launched out into his ministry. Oh, isn't this exciting? And they go over to Antioch, which is where Turkey is right now. And he starts a revival and preaches the gospel. And he goes to the synagogue, and they don't listen to him, so he goes next door into a house and starts preaching, and people start getting saved. And let's go down and look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. And the Jews stirred up the devout, prominent women and the chief men of the city and raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they shook the dust off their feet again, and they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And now it happened, chapter 14 in Iconium, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and spoke to them and the great multitude of the Jews and the Greeks believed, oh, we got a revival, praise God, I knew this is what I was called to do. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly to the Lord, who were bearing witness to the word of, with His grace and granting signs and wonders, in other words, miracles, to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews through their rulers to abuse and stone them, they become aware and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. Well, let's go over to, ver let's go, let's see. Verse 19 of chapter 14. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. He's now in Derby. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul. This is what he referred to earlier. They stoned him and dragged him outside of the city, supposing him to be dead. Let's think about that for a moment. They didn't shoot staples at him. 
They didn't throw insults at him. They threw rocks at him. These rocks injured him so much that they at least thought he was dead. To think he's dead means he has to be unconscious, bleeding, and have very little pulse. Or maybe he was dead. And they dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. However, the disciples gathered around him and he rose up. And where did he go when he rose up? He went back into the city. When I was growing up, we had a little toy called Weevils. Remember Weevils? And what is it about Weevils? Weevils wobble, but they won't fall down. For those of you that are too young to remember Weevils, they were little wooden characters that were small at the top and heavy at the bottom and heavily weighted at the bottom. So if you push them, and they were different sizes, they would bounce down, and because the center of gravity was down here, they'd come right back up again. That's what Paul was like. He was a weeble. He may have wobbled, but he wouldn't stay down. And the question of the, the title of tonight's message is, Are you a weeble? <laughs> no. <laughs> if I'd have thought of it, that's what I would have used. Now, that's not a good day. When they hit you with so many rocks, they're convinced you're dead. Otherwise, they would have kept throwing them. The disciples gather around pray, and you come back awake enough or back from the dead enough to get up and go back in the city. Let's go over to chapter 16 because now God's through an angel has spoken to Paul and told him to get out of that country and to go over to Greece. And Paul goes over to Greece and the first place he goes. Now, now you know, if an angel appeared to you and said, I've called you, Paul, to come over and to preach the gospel in this city. Wow. Get our bags packed, Silas, or Barnabas, because still Barnabas. So this is Silas now. We're on our way because an angel appeared to me, and we're going there to preach the gospel. Obviously, that angel has made a way for us. Well, Paul gets over there, and it's a long story. I don't want to go through it. Look in verse 16, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought our masters much profit from fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And Paul said, thank you ma'am for endorsing us. No, it says, and this she did for many days, but Paul greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, notice we don't rest against flesh and blood. Turn and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And the Spirit came out of her that very hour. Now why would he cast a demon out of a woman who was saying, these men are from God and they speak the word of God? Because demons are very cunning. And what that demon wanted was for the people to look to the woman to, to, to validate the ministry of God and not to the Spirit of God that was in Paul and Silas. 
You understand what I'm saying? And so Paul, notice Paul, the, the Holy Spirit didn't tell me. He just got irritated. He heard it enough. And he turned around and cast the demon out of her. Well, what happened is she had men that, that used her to predict things. And they made money off of her. And now that that demon spirit's gone, she can't do that anymore. Because it wasn't a natural ability. It was a supernatural ability given to her by those demonic forces. By the way, demons can't predict anything. But since Satan also lives outside of time, he knows what's going to happen also. There are also such things as some familiar spirits. That means they're familiar with you. Or they're familiar with the person they've told you something about. That doesn't mean it's God. That's why we have to have discerning of spirits. So what happens to make the story short, this long story short, is these men go create a riot, start a riot, and they haul Paul off and Silas and throw them into jail. That's in Philippi. Now what Paul and Silas do is they start singing in jail. Well, let's look at this. Let's see. There's a riot, verse 22. The multitude rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they laid many stripes upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison and fastened them in stocks. There again, it's not like our jails of today. It's not cement with a mattress on the... These are carved... These are caves. And down in there probably most likely like out in the deep, they're not alone. And their feet are in stocks, which means they can't pull them back if something walking on more than two feet decides they want to chew. Just a little picture there. But at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening. Now, how many of us in that situation, at midnight's the darkest hour, would be singing and praying and singing unto God? But what happens is an earthquake comes and shakes the prison, their shackles fall off, and the jailer comes rushing in because if these prisoners escape, his life is forfeited, finds out that they've stayed there and he, he, he asks them to come to his house. He feeds them, cleans them up. And, and Paul and Silas witness them get his house, him and his whole household saved because of the, how they responded to the, to the obstacles. Well, let's just look quickly at a couple others. Oh, they get leave there. They're thrown out there. They go down to Thessalonica. Down in Thessalonica, it says, verse 5, When the Jews were not persuaded, became envious, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, which is where they were staying, and sought to bring him out to the people. When they didn't find him, they, when they didn't find Paul, they dragged Jason and some brethren and rulers of the city, crying out, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. Jason has harbored them, and they all were acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Verse 8 says, And the trouble, the crowd, and the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, and, and they arrest them. So they kick them out of this city. They go down to Berea. They start to preach. The Bereans start listening to them, and the Thessalonians are not happy with that, so they send a contingent down to cause trouble in Berea. Now Paul goes down. The next place is he goes down um, to Ephesus. He goes down to Thessalonica. And that's in... Um, we already covered that. Okay. Now, chapter 19... 
he's back over in Ephesus. In Ephesus, chapter 19, we'll look at verse 23. About that time there grows a great commotion about the way, and a certain, uh, certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made the shrine of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called together the workmen of a similar occupation and said, Men, you know we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia. This Paul persuades men to turn and turns many people away, saying that they're not gods made with hands. Now notice that their motive is not to find the truth. Their motive is Paul's hurting their pocketbook. So when they heard this, verse 28, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of Ephesus. So the whole city was full with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Articus and Macedonians, Paul and, and, and Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples restrained him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent him pleading him that he would not venture into the theater. There's a riot, and says it goes on and says, they cried out for two hours straight, great is Diana of Ephesus. Wherever this man goes, there's a riot. Now let's go back, and there's some others we could go. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians. And I'll make you feel better. Of course, this may be making you feel better. <laughs> Now you can begin to see why Paul said, I despaired. It got to the point, after a while, where he ran out of his strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now there's some things I'm not going to deal with here. Verse 7. Lest I be exalted above measure... By the abundance of the revelations. Now he's still, he's being sarcastic here. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. He tells us what it is. It's a thorn in the flesh. It's not sickness and disease. A messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. What was that messenger? We just read what he did. Everywhere Paul went, almost everywhere, to preach the gospel, there was a messenger sent by Satan using people to come against him. Buffet means to come up against like that and push and hit back. And after a while, if you've been buffeted enough, now I was never a boxer, but I had a, somebody I knew that was a boxer, a golden glove boxer, and he was teaching me some principles of boxing when I was a kid. And one of the things he says, if you're not stronger than the other guy, what you do is you wear his strength down with jabs. With, you keep jabbing him, poking him in the face. The other thing to do is to keep hitting him in the ribs. No punch to the rib is going to take him out. No jab to the face is going to take him out. But what it does is it wears him down. You keep hitting someone in the ribs. The ribs is what you use to breathe with. If you keep hitting him in the ribs, the ribs begin to get sore. He will not be able to expand his chest cavity enough, and so his breaths will become shallower, and he'll become weaker. So you can take someone's strength away without having a knockout punch by wearing them down, by continually buffeting against them. And some of you know what I'm talking about because some of you have been experienced this buffeting. And it's not something that in and of itself would take you out. But the number of the attacks, 
The fact that they're one day after another. The fact that you don't seem to get a break from them. They keep coming at you. You wake up in the middle of the night, and there they come at you again. And you can't even get a full night's sleep, and they keep coming at you. Understand that as a messenger of Satan sent to buffet you. Why? To get you to quit. Why would Satan want you to quit? Because you're a threat to him. He only buffets someone that's a threat. Otherwise, he doesn't need to waste his energy and time. A messenger of Satan sent to buffet. Now look what Paul did. He did what we would naturally do. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. I don't think he said it that way. I doubt that he said, God, please get this to depart from me. I think he said, God, get this off my back. Remember, he's despairing of his own life. When you're despairing of life, your prayers are very real. They're not thou's and these. They come out of the heart. Three times. Now notice God's answer because people misread this. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Notice what's not in there. I don't find the word no in there. God didn't say no. Paul asked that you could get this thing to stop buffeting me. God's answer is, my grace is sufficient. So it doesn't matter whether it's buffeting you or not. It matters whether you can, can, can finish the course. But see, with the buffeting is this message, you're not going to make it. You can't, you can't sustain against this. You can't hold up any longer. You're worn out. You're too tired. You're not strong enough. And look at God's answer. My grace is sufficient for you. And this is what I want you to see tonight. God says, my strength, God's strength, is made perfect or complete in your weakness. My strength was his answer. Now notice what he's equating. We heard a little bit about this on Sunday. God's equating his strength with his grace. We often hear the word grace and think it's kind of a weak word. Because what we think God, mean, we, God means by grace is that he's letting us by. And, and the word grace does kind of have a soft connotation in our language. It talks about, you know, this person is developed in the graces of life, which, you know, means that they're, they're developed in etiquette and the proper way to do things, you know, and they know how to have the knife and the fork in the right place. And those are called graces, and, and graces can mean more than that. It can mean, you know, our appreciation for refined things. So there is a sense in our language in that words. See, words not only have a direct meaning, they have a feel about them. 
And see, when you hear that word grace in the Bible, you're not only receiving what the word literally means, because we know what the word literally means, but there also communicates that feeling, it's called a connotation, that feeling that words triggers in you, and it may trigger something a little different in each one of us, but that word grace generally triggers something that's kind of soft and easy and gentle. But that's not what the grace of God is. Just like the word gentle communicates that same thing until you think about what gentle is. The word gentle means restrained power. Years ago, there was a TV show called Gentle Ben. Remember what Ben was? Ben was a big black bear. Why was he called gentle? Because he had the power to take that guy out with one swipe of that paw, but he restrained it. See, if you don't have the strength and you restrain it, that's called weak. Gentle means you have the strength, but you're not exercising it. Grace is the power of God that has saved you. It's the power of God that brought Christ alive in the place of death. And here God is saying, my grace is sufficient, is more than you need in the middle of that buffeting because that grace is my power perfected in you. So read that word grace as the power of God. God saying my, my power is sufficient for you. But notice that power is given to us as an act of grace not because we've earned it. See, if he used the word power, and Paul, God says, that's okay, Paul, my power is sufficient for you, we might have a doubt in the back of our mind, yeah, but I don't know that I've been strong enough yet for God to release his power on my behalf. So God uses the word grace, because when we understand grace, we understand we didn't deserve it. We heard a phenomenal teaching on Sunday. If you weren't here, you need to get the CD on grace. That grace is not just to save you and keep you from hell, but it is to sustain you. It is the power of God. What God is saying here to Paul, because Paul is basically saying what we've said I've run out, I've had it, I'm done. I don't have any more strength to deal with this because he's human like you and I are. He's tried to deal with it in his own strength. God sometimes has to wait. Okay, hot shot. Take your best shot at it. Go ahead. I know that's what you're going to do anyway. Remember, he knows the manner of men. Take your, go ahead. Just let's walk. Go ahead, go ahead. But see, when God does that, he's still there. He's there to catch you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There's no temptation that's overtaken you that's not common to man, with which God will not also provide grace to help and a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, God's not going to let you go through something He has not already determined that He can't get you through. But He will let you go through something you can't get yourself through. Why? So that we will learn to trust in Him and not in ourselves. Yes. 
I've taught you this before. God is not looking for you to be a representative of Him that shows how strong you are. God's not going to stand you up in heaven and say, Bruce, everybody look at Bruce. Look at how strong he was. No, what God's going to do is going to take you and me and say, see that weakness that they had? See how many times they stumbled over that? See how much they didn't deserve help? And look what I did to help them. What God wants to use you and me for as trophies that prove what His grace will do, not what our righteousness and our goodness will do. And the Apostle Paul had to learn this at least three times we know of. Of course, three times he went back to him and said, Get it off my back. God smiled and says, Paul, you've already got what you need. My grace is sufficient for you. Now Paul goes on and we can see he finally got it. Therefore, most gladly will I rather boast in my infirmities. That is my inability to deal with this on my own. So that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's really saying that His power will not go off in you until you've run out of yours. What that means, now listen carefully, that means when it looks like you've hit the end, you've found the beginning. Ephesians chapter 3 says, around verse 20 or so, says, For my God will, can, will do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. What that means is God begins to do His stuff when you come to the end of what you can ask or think. So when you've run out and hit the end, and sometimes we think we've hit it before we've hit it, you found the place where God's power will begin to take over. And God will be able to prove what He can do with you and through you. Paul finally learned that lesson, which means instead of going through the struggle looking for the way out, he's going to the struggle looking for the end of himself because that's the place where God's work will begin. If you, oh, I never saw this before. Here's one of the reasons that's so important. Because if we don't learn that lesson, then we will walk within the boundaries of our own limitations. We will look at the purpose and call of God on our life and say, I can't do that. I don't have enough education. I'm too old. I'm not strong enough. You don't know what I'm like. You have no idea the time I've argued that to God. You, you forgot who you got when you put me here. Until I realized one day what I'm saying to him. I'm saying, God, I know better than you do. You made a mistake. I never saw this before. See, until you find this out, you're always going to be limited by what you think you can do. And God always thinks beyond what you can do. 
So you'll stay, now, you'll stay where you are. You bear with me a couple minutes here? Because if you stay where you are within the boundaries you have today, listen what happens. Those boundaries begin to shrink. If you react on the basis of what you think you can do, you'll find that the boundaries of what you think you can do tomorrow will be smaller than what you think you can do today. Because there's a messenger from Satan sent to tell you you can't go any further. Jesus led his disciples over to a place called Gadara. And there was a road into the city. The problem was there was a man that lived in caves by that road who was, had a thousand demons in him. And these demons were so powerful and he was so far beyond control, they tried to chain him and he broke the chains. What it says is no one would go down that road. What happened is the demons established a boundary of where they could go. Jesus gets there. And the demons come out to establish that boundary. And he didn't think based on human boundaries. He didn't think based on what he could do. He wasn't trusting in his strength. Because he only did what he saw his father do. See, we can't do what we see our Heavenly Father do if we're not willing to go beyond the boundaries of what we think we can do. Oh, this is good. I never saw this before. But you'll never go beyond the boundaries of what you think you're capable of until you learn to run out of what you can do and look for what God can do. Now, here's the key, and I'll end with this because it's late. How do I find that grace if I'm in that spot? Does it just fall on me? It's given, but as with everything else from God, it's received by faith. And what does that mean? That means if the Bible says God's given it, faith acts as if it's so. So if the Bible says when you run out of what you can do, God's grace is there to take over, you've got to start expecting that grace to be there. So when you get to that point where you've run out, you've got two choices. You can run away from that point and pull back, or you can keep going knowing that His grace is going to hold you on the next step because you've run out of what you can do. I needed to preach this tonight just to see that point for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your grace. We recognize, Lord, that there may be people here tonight that are at this point where Paul was, where they're despairing even of their own life and they're ready to quit. Help them tonight to see, Father, that this verse, this promise is theirs as well as Paul's. For you're not a respecter of persons. What you promised to Paul, you promised to each one of us. Father, help us to lift our eyes up of ourselves and off of our limitations. And help us to learn to discern the voices that are talking to us, 
that subtle voice that speaks into our ear and says, you can't do it. You're not going to make it. You're going to drown. You're going to fail. Look at your past. Look at all the times you failed before. Help us to recognize that that's not your voice. Your voice says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Your voice tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Your voice says I can when we want to say we can't. Thank you for this wonderful gift of grace. Open our eyes tonight, Father, and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that to recognize the power of your grace that's there in our lives if we'll just trust in you and step out on that grace. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.